All right, well, welcome everyone. My name is Bill, and again, I'd like to welcome you to Bethel Christian Church, and so glad that uh, you decided to worship with us. This is an amazing day. It is Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday. Now, now there are some people here that they hear Easter, whoa, 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 Easter's a pagan holiday. Can't have any of that pagan stuff in here. So we say it's Resurrection Sunday, which it is. This is, we're not just celebrating a pagan holiday that the church kind of kidnapped, we're celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. A lot of other things are being celebrated today. You know what else today is? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's birthday. It's somebody's birthday. That's true. It's weed day. Spoke a, spark a blunt for Jesus. 420, right? It's earth day. It's Hitler's birthday. It's the anniversary of Columbine. Firing up weed, saving the earth, gassing Jews, killing people who bullied you, new life from death. Every single one of us sees this world, sees our lives, sees what we need so differently. But the problem is every single one of us is convinced we're right. That we have the ability to know right from wrong. We have the ability to know good from bad. We can judge our own lives. We're captain of our own lives. And, and to a certain extent, this is true. But where we get into trouble is when we make assumptions over God based on this world and this life and just other people. See, God loves us so much. That's what this day is about primarily. If you remember, if you know nothing else today, if you walk out of here remembering nothing else, know that God loves you. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to change yourself. God God isn't looking in in disapproval in, in, in all of this. God loves you. But that's not the whole story. You see, Jesus, in wanting to let us know unmistakably who the true Father was, our true Creator, the one who loves us, the one who made us, um, used to tell lots of stories. Because everybody that he was talking with was convinced as well they knew who God was, they knew the right way to run the world, they knew the right set of values, they could judge for themselves, and they were right and others were wrong. And with everyone thinking they're right, we continue to wrong each other over and over again. So people had been asking this question, how could the world be such a mess if there's a God that's all-powerful and a God that's all-loving, and we've been hearing about this wonderful creator, because the life that I live, it's not this wonderful, happy life. It's very different from what I read here. And so I'd like to um, just if really briefly, if we could focus on what God himself wants us to know about who he is, about his heart for us, that cuts through all the walls. Uh, we take the, the destruction of our own life and we make barricades and ramparts to protect what little we have. And let's just allow God's word to cut into, into our hearts and let him speak to us. Let's pray. God, anything I have for anyone is worthless, but you have words of life. Open our eyes, open our hearts, that we would know you, we would know your love. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, third Gospel we find in the New Testament, 
tells a lot about the life of Jesus. Fully God, fully man. What does it look like when God has come near? And he showed us in action, in deed, in word, what is love embodied? What is sacrifice? What is truth? And he did so in ways we could connect to and relate to. Well, right in the middle of the book, Luke chapter 15, um, he tells three stories. Uh, Three stories about being lost. Talks about a lost sheep, talks about a lost coin, talks about a lost son. And in each of those, he's pulling back more layers that we can see God's heart, that we can feel God's heart. And what's interesting here, every single person listening had it wrong. Okay, you can, you, you can follow along in the Pew Bibles, make sure I'm not lying to you, found in uh, Luke chapter 15. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, got to pull the emergency brake here. That word sinner, what do you think about when you hear the word sinner? You're a sinner, and you're going to burn in hell. Sinner, what do you think of this word? It's been used an awful lot. I mean, we just bandied it about in the church and just club people over the head. I mean, club them like a baby seal with just, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You're getting hell, you're getting hell, you're getting hell. Uh, this word's been overused, but here's the problem. It's far worse than we think it is. You see, we stop short at personal offense. You don't know me, you don't know my story. How dare you call me a sinner? If you knew my circumstances, you wouldn't judge me, you hypocrite. And so we get personally offended when somebody speaks into our life and it kind of stops there. Or when we think, when we hear the word sinner, we think I should have a giant sign saying God hates fags and praise God for dead soldiers. That there's a sense of hatred, there's a sense of bias, there's a sense of I'm better and you're not and I'm going to rub it in your face. Well, here's the interesting thing in this story. All those people were there and God loved them as well. All of the experts in religion, all the people that knew their Bible better than anyone else, all their people that were scorekeepers and gatekeepers, and they controlled who was in and who was out, and they judged accordingly. Can you match my behavior? They were there to see if Jesus was teaching according to them, if they could endorse it. Now, the, way, the reason God refers to us as sinners, it simply means this. We don't measure up. We don't arrive where we should. We are not who we should be. Now, any of us, if we've lived any length of time in this world, we realize and realize more and more so we're not the people that we want to be. We're not the people that we should be. And the harder we try to achieve this, to secure it for us, the more it seems out of our reach. The Bible's very clear what the reason is. Right back at the very beginning, we have the creation. We have a God who is completely mysterious, who chose to create us out of love, to have a relationship, to share life, to share eternity, to share himself with. That's what love does. It spills over to others. God wasn't lonely. He didn't have to make us, but he wanted to. And in doing so, he laid out the way this is going to work. That he desired that we could be like him so we could know him. This is how we're made. This is where we come alive. But it was a choice. And right at the very beginning, it went, went wrong just, before it, just after it started. That we decided collectively as humanity, however you understand this, we decided, I know better. Yeah, thank you, God, for life. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I got this now. And the rest of the story of our lives is, I got this. I got this. I got this. 
And we all run off the road in different ways, and things surprise us differently, and we're hurt differently, and we respond differently, and we're we're, we're dragged through this life differently. The word sinner is a word of freedom because it says, I don't measure up to God, and he's not expecting me to. Now, let me qualify that statement. When God made us, he placed us in relationship that we could grow in him and grow in power and to know him. And the way it's, it's spelled out in the story, so we could understand it, is um, all of our needs were provided for. And he said, I am training you to know, to trust me, that I am good, that I love you, that what I say is right, and it's good for you, and it makes sense. And you're just going to have to trust me here. So of all these needs, help yourself. But there's this one thing you're not ready for yet, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not ready for this yet because you don't yet trust me. You don't yet see me as I am. And so we're going to work on that. And the more that you develop this trust and this relationship in this heart, the more I'm going to give you the ability to judge right from wrong because you'll be doing so with my heart. You'll be doing so with my wisdom. You'll be doing so as I would. The reason we're here is to be God. Genesis 1, 26, first chapter, first book of the Bible. God said, let us make man to be our image, to do as we would do in this world, to create where we would create, to reconcile where we would reconcile, to forgive, to rebuild, to give hope, to love, to, to exude our presence at cost. That's why we're here. That's where we're fully human, worshiping God connected to our maker. But we said, no, I got this. We went our own way, and the consequences of that was that we cut off our lifeline. We cut off our main relationship. And so now it feels like God isn't there. He doesn't care. He's an absentee landlord at best because we got this. We know better. We can judge our own lives, who's in, who's out. We're gatekeepers. We're scorekeepers. Blood of the Pharisees, of the religious Nazis flows in my veins as well because I got this. I know better. See, what what we did is we chose to take this knowledge upon ourselves before we were ready, and it crushed us. It's like Indiana Jones going into the temple uh, right at the beginning of the first movie, and it's like the rock, just that giant boulder, the, the one that you're running from. It's like it just flattened him, and that was the end of the movie right there. That's what happened to us, and we're just dreaming the rest of it. You see, when we took this knowledge of good and evil upon ourselves when we weren't ready, our soul was flattened. We, we couldn't do this. We couldn't judge as God did. And so we scrambled. We feel guilty because now we're exposed. We feel ashamed. We cover. We hide. Barriers between us and man, us and God, within ourselves. And so all of us are isolated. All of us are alone in ourselves, alone in families, in relationships in this world. Still trying to figure out who we are, even though we know we got this. You see, taking that knowledge upon, upon ourselves, we, what that means is now we're required to do everything God would do. He was preparing us for that, but we're not ready now. We can't. None of us can measure up to God's requirements. None of us can. And so that is the hell that we're seeing created over and over again in lives and in relationships and on this planet. That where there is no relationship, no knowledge of God, no love, the absence of that is hell. And those are the consequences. You see, in our rebellion and going our own way, what we took upon ourselves were the consequences of every single thing that doesn't equal God. That we do, that we think, that we feel, how we regard others, what we don't do. 
And, and that just is something we can never escape from. And we try. We fill our lives with so many things. We get so busy. We get so engaged. We get so numb. We get so driven. But we keep coming back to the same place. Every revolution brings us right back 360 to where we began. But we got this. We know better. We can judge for ourselves right and wrong. And so Jesus speaks right into this. And he says, you think you know God. You think you know justice. You think you know the way the world works. Let me tell you this. Which one of you lost sheep? Which one of you, if you were a shepherd, you have 100 sheep, one of them gets lost. You're going to leave the 99. They're okay. They're safe. And you'll do whatever it takes to go after that one lost sheep. People say, all right, I get it. Sure. You're watching after somebody else's stuff. Uh, you're going you're to put yourself out there to go after somebody else's. Sure, I get that. Then he talks about value. Okay, we talked about a sheep. What about a coin? What is of most value to you? Do you know how you know that? What are you thinking about right now? Where's your mind going? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? Look at your bank statement at the end of the month. Look at where, look at where you weren't sleeping, what, what you're doing. This is what is valuable to us. This is what defines us. This is, this is what we pursue. And so he uses the story, which one of you, if you lose whatever is of value, you're going to do whatever it takes to get it back. And when you get it back, you're going to be happy. You're going to rejoice. You're going to be complete in a sense. This is the way it should be. And so he's linking this to God saying in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over the one person who was lost, the one person in rebellion, the one person isolated, the one person in hell and destined for hell, who looks up and says, God, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it apart from you. I need you. Help me. But where everyone was really stuck was how God felt about them. You see, the religious people were there to remind everyone that they did not measure up and they had to work harder, pray more, read the Bible. All the sinners there would remind people that we just can't do this at all and it's unreasonable. And so he tells his third story about a father and about a son. Familiar to this story, it's called the tale of the, or the story of the prodigal son. I think it's a, a better way to understand it's the return of the prodigal father. Because it was a story of two sons. And in the ancient Hebrew culture, the first son was going to get everything and the younger son was going to get nothing. And everyone understood the story. And it said the younger son grew up in the same household as his father, or as his older brother. They knew the same dad, same rules, same everything. Same family jokes, the works. The younger son decided one day, I got this. I know what life's about. I'm going to go make my way in the world. I'm tired of, of, of living in this family. So he told his father, he said, you know what? I don't want to wait around for you to die to get my inheritance. So give me my share of the inheritance now, and I'll go make a name for myself apart from you. The father didn't say anything. He said, all right, as you wish. And he, and he, and he gave him the money. Now, what is shocking in that story is he was giving his dad the middle finger in that story. He's saying, I wish you were dead. Your money is more important to me than you. You're only of value to me for what I can get out of you. But, but, but most relationships aren't like that, so I'm getting ahead of myself. Forget that. But, but it's the sense of it was mercenary contract. I'm only in it for what I can get out of it. So he went and he had to learn the hard way. It says he partied like a maniac with all his money, that he probably... Um, did everything you could imagine, and it still wasn't enough. If you're familiar with the story, at the end of the story, he runs out of money, his friends drop him, he's got absolutely nothing, he's a poor Jew, he sells himself as a slave, and he's eating pig food. He's sunk as low, as low, as low, as low can be. And he says, you know what, my father, 
Slaves at his household have it better than I do. So I'm going to return, and I'm, going to, I'm just going to own what I did. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've disgraced the family name. I've brought you shame. I've brought you hurt. I can only imagine how angry you are. I can only imagine what the conversations are every night. I cry myself to sleep in the mud next to the pigs, just dreaming of how it used to be. So he says, I'll go back, and I'll, just, I'll try and earn this. I'm not worthy, but what I'll do is I'll work for it as a slave. You see, what the religious people were saying is, hey, we've earned this already and we've arrived. So they sat around judging everyone else. And this is a dynamic that has not ceased to change. Typically speaking, those most comfortable in church are the people least comfortable with Jesus. And that's what we see here. Because it's not about keeping score. It's not about rules. It's not about earning. Because we cannot, must not earn. It's not about us. And so he lays out this story of him coming, coming to the end of himself and, he, and he's going back to his father and it's just the walk of shame and his clothes are ripped and he's a slave and his head shaved bald and it's just disgrace and everybody sees this person returning going, oh, is he going to get it? And before, before he was even close enough to make out figures, this is guy running toward him like a maniac. And it said his dad would go out every day looking for him. Has he returned? His dad was a powerful man. He could have hired goons to come and drag his son back. He could have hired the police. He, he could have gilded him. He could have browbeat him. He could have done a hundred things. He could have pulled the money. He could have manipulated him with it. But he wanted his heart. He wanted a relationship. He didn't just want a good son. He didn't want a conforming son. He didn't want a non-embarrassing son. He wanted someone to love. And the only way to do that is he's going to want it back. And so he has to let him go as much as it broke the father's heart. Every day we see the father's anguish. And so when the son's coming back, this dignified father, who was the paragon of his community, who was community leader, who was rich, who was looked up to by everyone, he could care less what everyone else thought. He could care less about the gossip, about the shame, about what kind of father he must have been, about all of this. And it says he lifted up his, his, his garments Basically, uh, this, this kaftan dress they had, he kind of made like a little diaper around him. It's really embarrassing. That's what you do when you're working and you're with your buddies and nobody else sees you. Um, that's like the hardcore stuff. That's like, okay, you got to clean, you know, getting your underwear kind of thing, whatever. But, but the point is, you, you're, you're, you're totally ready for this. He embarrassed himself in front of everyone. He girded himself like a diaper and he's running as fast as he can. This old guy is out of breath and he just falls upon his son. I am so glad to see you. Son's trying to vomit out his apology. Father won't even hear it. He says, all that matters now is you are back. I love you. That's all that matters. You are back. I love you. But Father, I don't want to hear it. But Father, you don't understand. But I did this. But I hurt you. But I hurt this person. But I've broken this and I've broken that and these guys and all this. And it's, it's, it's over. You don't have to worry about it. You're home. You're where you belong. You're with me. And they celebrated. And it was, it was the Father's heart. You see, what the religious people and the gatekeepers and the scorekeepers felt, what those who felt so inadequate and they couldn't measure up and they got tired of trying to please a stern God who wasn't there and they left, what everybody had wrong was who God was because they all saw God as a God who demanded us to earn and that we had to work for this and we had to deserve it. I said it went wrong right after it began. None of us deserves. All of us are cut off from our life source. All of us are deceived. We judge right and wrong, but we're not able to, and we're still held accountable. So all the consequences that we do, hurting people, hurt people, piling up time and again, it accrues to our life. 
If you've been to St. Peter's Basilica, send me a postcard because I've always wanted to go. I hear it's pretty cool. But I hear the tour of the Sistine Chapel ends with, with Da Vinci's final judgment. And the tour guide asks and lets this, lets this question sink in. Why is there a final judgment rather than a whole bunch of individual judgments? I mean, God's infinite and he's eternal, right? So it's not like he's going to save time. You know, if he wants to judge 7 billion people, and he's got the time, right? But why is there one final judgment and not just whenever you die, you know, boom, now serving 2,395,294. Dang, I got to wait here. Why is it a final judgment? Because the net result of our lives continues long after we're gone, for better or for worse. How we've impacted others, what we've done to others, what we've done for others, how we've conveyed God or not conveyed God, how we've accurately represented him or not, all of these results continue to affect others and in diminishing ways are accredited to us. We're responsible. And so there's a final net result for all the decisions of our entire life, which is the reality and which has separated us from God. And because God loves us, His love is fierce and he takes every violation personally. When you are violated, when you are hurt, God must deal with that. So he has set a date when all the wrong, all the sin, all the hurt, all the violation, all the violence that we experience within and without is going to be set right, is going to be dealt with, is going to be perfect justice. But rather than just doing this already, rather than just, just ripping this thing up and starting over, God perseveres with us in our rebellion, in our lostness, in our pain, in our giving him the fecker and shaking our fist, in, in our lostness and isolation. He is the father looking for us, longing for us, not afraid to be embarrassed. When I would travel with, with, um, with, with our kids, and we, we did, did a lot of travel, uh, we'd take trains, buses, all sorts of things, and I remember one border stop, my daughter was really not feeling well, and, and I was the one, I was her go-to person, and so we're at the border, it's really tense, guards are coming on the train, and she just, daddy, I'm not feeling well, so I run to her, I shouldn't be getting up, I grab her, I pick her up, and she just throws up more than I've ever seen anyone in my entire life. I thought somebody hooked her up to a standpipe or something, I mean, it was just this continuous, she filled my pockets up. I'm wearing shorts. My pockets are filled up with vomit. My, my shirt pocket filled up with vomit. I got the blowback hairdo, and these guards are screaming. It's just this nightmare. None of that mattered. None of that mattered. I had my girl, and I could comfort her. She was with me. All this other stuff, it'll wash. Who cares? It's stupid. It's funny. What mattered was her. And that's exactly how God is with us. We're we're, we're just ashamed of the stains and the vomit on us and all this. And he just runs, humiliates himself, going to be even more undignified, wraps his arms around us and lets us know who we really are, the name he's really given us. You see, he must judge all wrongdoing because of his love, because of his righteousness. We cry out for this justice every time we're wronged. If it's easy to forgive, we probably haven't been wronged too badly. Forgiveness takes time because it's real. And so God did what we could never do ourselves. He took our place. Everything that separated us, a full life, dead and buried and gone, that full lifetime of every decision, every I got this, every I know better, that separated us further from God and chipped away the image of God in others and in our own hearts. We could never make up for that. We could never be good enough. We could never try hard enough. Not the most religious person. And that's great because we don't have to. What we celebrate today is the finished work of God. Everything that separated us, everything that nailed us to this earth, everything that pulled us away from where we really belong, God has dealt with. God switched places. 
As infinite God, he took the full punishment for a full lifetime of sins that I deserve. I did this to you because I knew better, because I got this, because I'm right. And I'm guilty. And I've hurt you. And I've got one expectation apart from God. And there's nothing I can do to change it. There is new life in Christ. There is the Father who longs after us. There is a God that didn't phone it in, got his fingernails dirty, got right up close and personal where we live, where we hurt, where we hate. And that's where he meets us. In his brokenness, we are made whole. Our hatred falling upon him with thorns and nails and insults and spit. That was our hatred towards God reaching out toward us. And he loved us all the more. There is one of the most beautiful verses in scripture. And it tells the story from God's perspective. It tells the story of the prodigal son from God's perspective. It's found in Romans chapter 5. For at the right time. God knows you. He knows the arc of your life. He knows what he's doing. At the right time, Christ died for those not like God, me and you, the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Well, someone will hardly die for a good person. Somebody might die for a great person, but nobody's going to die for an enemy. And God says this, while you were my enemies, while you had hate in your heart, while you knew better, while you were hurting those that I cared about, while you were doing all of this, That is when I died for you. That is when I took your place so you wouldn't have to take this punishment which must come. And you can know the forgiveness and grace and the love of a tender father as he intended it. That's the demonstration of love. See, what the religious people and what the non-religious people failed to understand was that when they were at their worst that nobody else sees in their heads and in their hearts, When there's regrets, they just can't even live with themselves. The things we just can't forgive ourselves for. God saw all of it when it happened. God already made provision for it. God has taken upon himself that we could know him. So how does God relate to us today? How are you feeling about the Father? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I will never understand this, how God could love me when I continue to betray him with my unfaithfulness, with my lack of track record, with people before me. You guys are relatively easy to love. I hate myself, but you guys are relatively easy to love. And I still fail that. But the love of the Father does not disappoint because it is perfect. I'm not going to mess this up because God's done it already. It's not a hope that's dependent upon me. And that's what we celebrate. We have new life in God the way he intended because he is alive. Anything that would separate us, any excuse, anything we could hide behind, anything we would think would make us lesser than has been removed in Christ. And so it's that exchanged life. We can come before the Father. We can know the true love that we counterfeited for so much of our life. We can know the true love that God wants to fill us with. Typically, this would be the place where where we would do an altar call, where I would say, if there's anyone here that knows that they know that they know the time has come, that God is drawing, God is speaking. Some of you might be starting a spiritual journey. You might be aware of things. You might be hearing for for the first time. But for those who are are considering God and, and themselves in their heart and what's true and right, for those that are on the cusp of trusting God, 
God, you have told me who I am. Do I believe it or not? And God says, test, taste and see that I am good. But I am not going to lie to you. I'm not going to sell you a bill of goods. Becoming a Christian is the easiest thing ever on the planet because all the heavy lifting's been done for us already. Christ took all of our sins upon him. The wrath's been dealt with. Justice has been done. There's nothing separating us from God. It's easy. But being a Christian is going to be the most difficult, heart-wrenching, soul-turning, inside-out thing you will ever do. Because God loves you so much. He accepts you just the way you are. Just the way you are. Just what you do. Just what you think. Just what you feel. But he will not leave you there. Because us knowing better and having it, we're still hurting. We're still missing. And God wants to draw us in closer. And so this is a huge decision. This will cost you. It will cost you more than you will know. But it is a value greater than anything People who've encountered God, people who've discovered his freedom, his forgiveness, his love, and being made free indeed have all said this, it only cost me my entire life, and it was worth it. It's a bargain the best I ever had. But this is a conviction God needs to give you. I can can go with the the, the horrible, sad, tragic story and and work the emotional levers and and, and try and press it that way. I could give the bold challenge and now's the time and you're going to get hit with a bus and go to hell unless you decide right now and, and, and guilt lever. The goal isn't eliciting a response and the goal isn't getting a, getting a, a set outcome. The goal is encouraging each and every one of us to continually reconsider the love of God in Christ Jesus. To continually reconsider that what happens in life is not God. God spoke to his prophet. He didn't speak to him in the earthquake or the whirlwind or, or or the lightning. He spoke to him in the small, still voice. So God speaks to each of us in personal ways. God is speaking to each of us. He's spoken loud and clear through the sacrifice That cost him everything. And God would say when he looks at you, I have claimed Tad. He is my own. It only cost me absolutely everything. And you're a bargain. The best I ever had. That is what the Father is saying to each of us. So I'm going to ask you to consider this week to seek God to reconsider him. To reconsider how you feel uh, your standing is before him. What does God feel about you? Is God angry? Is God disappointed? Is God upset? Or does God absolutely rejoice over you and in that fierce love will not brook any compromise, will not brook any uh, opponents, any intruders that you would know the love you were made for? Let's pray. Lord, your salvation is too great for any of us to understand. And we so quickly want to take it back. We so quickly want to show you and prove and make it right and earn. Lord God, pry our fingers away from our hearts that want to deserve. Open up our hands from the things of this world that define us, the things that we hold on to that keep us in place, that we would receive from you your love, your grace, your peace. As you are, Lord God, may we know you. And may we fully understand every single God that's ever been rejected has yet to exist. Because as we see you for how you really are, your love for us, we, when we're at our very worst, your love is undiminished for us. We want to know more of you and more of your love. 
We don't want anything to get in the way, Father. So have your way with us. Fill us, Lord God. For those of us that don't know you, I pray for a conviction, a restlessness, a desperation, because that is the reality. And for those that, of us that know you but have, have come to see you in ways that aren't true, let us be set free. Father, let us know your hand of love upon us. Let us have courage to face the very next things in which you want to grow us. And let us know your love as we've never known, as we've not settled for yet in this life. In Christ's name we pray. We thank you for your love. Amen.